0: Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We'll be... we <clears throat> one more one more sermon in this chapter next week, but today we'll be looking at Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. And if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 14. And when they came to the crowd... And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And to God, we ask you this, this time that you would meet us here as we listen to your word and as you speak to us in our hearts through your word. Father God, uh, we often struggle to depend upon you as we should. We often struggle to turn our face to Christ. When instead, we turn inwardly in ourselves, in our own power, in our own strength, and we fail to obey by submitting to your Son, Jesus Christ, and just literally trusting him in all things. And so, God, in your, in your mercy, you, you meet us where we are, and you teach us about our little faith. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would speak boldly to us all, that you would meet us here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please have a seat. Now, as we're continuing here in Matthew 17, Matthew's narrative has been about divine revelation. And this continues in this scene that follows, remember, the transfiguration. We were in those verses of the transfiguration for three weeks, and now we're in a scene that follows them after they've come down off of the mountain And you can imagine coming to this event, I mean, once again, the disciples of Jesus are going to learn another lesson about their role as the future church, about their role of continuing the ministry after Jesus leaves uh, because of his death and his resurrection and ascension. That's, That's from this point forward in Matthew's gospel. This is where Jesus is now leading to. I mean, the lesson that from Jesus in this encounter with the father and this demon-possessed boy is important. The lesson here is faith. But the lesson here is not what we normally think of from this passage of, if you just have more faith. I want us to understand here what the lesson is. I mean, the, the father here of this boy, he shows tremendous humility by placing his faith in Christ Jesus right there, by prostrating himself before the Lord, begging for mercy for his son. The disciples failed to serve this family. Look here in verse 16, right? Because what does the father say? And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. The disciples failed this family. And the father turns to Christ. But let's remember that this passage has been used to support the idea that if only our strength in Christ was powerful enough, we could be like God with the literal power to move mountains. Now, if nothing is impossible for the possessor of great faith, then does Jesus have a role to play as the Christ here? If, we, if all we need is just a little more faith and then we can tell that mountain to move, do we really need Christ anymore? see where we're headed? I think there's a deeper lesson here. I mean, if nothing is impossible for us as possessors of great faith, then does Jesus even have a role to play as the Christ anymore, the healer of the demon-possessed anymore? Is it all about us being the new, one, the new ones who cast out demons? Let's take a look here at what we got. I mean, it, there's a doctrinal lesson in this encounter. There's a doctrinal lesson. How do we as the church help anyone? We are called as the church to proclaim the gospel, not only through preaching and singing and worshiping, but we are called, we are commanded by our Lord to proclaim the kingdom of heaven by serving the needy. But how often do we fail at that? Clearly here, these 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 disciples failed miserably. How how does this happen? There's a doctrinal lesson here. It seems that Jesus teaches a profound lesson about the doctrine of helping power in the world. Does the church have power to help? Sure, but who has the power to help the suffering? We struggle with that. How many of us feel overwhelmed when someone is suffering and we feel helpless and not being able to comfort them or to Take care of their needs. I mean, financially, there's a lot of people in our world right now in our communities that they are struggling to make ends meet. The economy is tightening, and trust me, folks, the church is going to be called upon more and more often to help these. But there's a limit there, even financially. How do we help everybody? We we feel helpless. Remember that, that Matthew shared the lesson that the Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer at the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes back in Matthew 17, 12. Now this idea of suffering continues. Now the disciples have an opportunity to help a suffering boy and his father, but they could not heal him, verse 16. How then can the church help anyone who suffers? This is part of the problem here. This is part of the lesson that Jesus is teaching. The continual idea or the continual theme in this passage, if you look at it, is the impossibility of solving the situation. The word unable or the phrase could not, if you look, is repeated three times in this passage, verse 16, verse 19, and then again in verse 20. The translation in verse 20 of impossible is the grammatical choice for the translation, but the idea is the same. Why were these disciples unable to heal the boy? Anybody here feel unable as a Christian? We all feel unable. And that's the point here of this, this narrative, the this, point here of this scene The theme of unable, the theme of impossibility of solving any of the problems. I mean, just as the transfiguration before was about the authoritative power of Christ. I mean, here the lesson is about helping power. Not the power to do powerful things in the name of Christ Jesus. But how do we as the church, how are we as Jesus's disciples to help? There's a failure here. Look here at verse 14 through 16. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. And then he describes it for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I mean, the father suffers at the misery and the pain of his son. Fathers in the room, do you suffer when your children suffer? Clearly. I mean, human misery stands in contrast here against the divine majesty that these three disciples have just witnessed on the mountain of transfiguration. You notice the stark contrast here. These disciples just days ago witnessed a divine revelation of Christ's authority and his true deity, and now in contrast, as they've come down off of the mountain, now they're seeing the contrast of the human condition of suffering. I I think it's important to point out that how Matthew's gospel generally portrays Jesus's disciples as weak. That's a common thing throughout the gospel. Disciples of Jesus are not necessarily portrayed as heroes of the faith in Matthew. Uh, They're never shown to be possessors of Jesus's miraculous power. in doing this, I think this gospel reflects the reality of all followers of Christ we are all accurately described as unable. I mean, remember how Jesus describes the blessed who inherit the kingdom of heaven back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. How does Jesus describe those who are blessed in the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is spelling out real clearly our inability. Yet we're blessed in the kingdom if we come to the kingdom in this state. I mean, this weakness of human nature, this natural state of sinful human nature is more clearly seen in this humble father who comes to Jesus in verse 14 here. Lord, have mercy on my son. The Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. I mean, this is the cry of the unable human condition. It is the theme of the faith. Lord, have mercy. I mean, his son suffered seizures or some, ta- some translations like this, epilepsy, or who ha- some other translations. Actually, Mark chapter nine, 9, the parallel passage describes who hath a dumb spirit. And where and and another thing it it describes it in Matthew, actually Mark chapter 9, verse 8 describes it even deeper. And wherever it takes him, it dashes him down, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and pines away. This was demon possession. I mean, verse 16, look here, verse 16, as this as this father comes to Jesus, he tells him. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Do you hear the frustration in these words? How many people in the world come to the church? They come to us as Christians, as disciples of Christ, and we cannot help them. They'll they'll, they'll be desperate in their heart. They'll be desperate in their plea. And here we see in verse 16, the weakness of this father, his, his inability to help his son is also reflected here. He's really the same weak condition as the disciples. He says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. I mean, the father, why would he bring his son to anyone if the father of this boy himself could not help him too? So you see the continual theme here of inability. A father feels helpless about his son who needs him. And he comes to who he thinks can help, and the disciples fail him too. And so the father expresses his disappointment here, his frustration. I mean, I mean think about this. The, the students of the great teacher, these disciples, would they not be like their teacher? I mean, clearly the, the, the father of this boy thought that, hey, these are disciples of the great teacher, Jesus Christ. Maybe they can heal my son. If Jesus is so powerful, remember, Jesus by this point had a great reputation amongst the countryside of great miracles and healing. But if Jesus is so powerful, why are his disciples not? That's the point here. I mean, as fathers, as think about this as family. I remember one time as my son Logan was, he wasn't even really eight months old. He was very little and he had a fever. You know those fevers in your children, your babies that you just, you can just feel the heat as you hold them. And it was a night that his mother was at work. We only had one car. I was stranded at home. I couldn't take him to the hospital. I couldn't take him to a doctor. And I was sitting in his room, just holding him right here, just rocking back and forth in his room, crying out to the Lord. I am helpless here, Lord. Help my boy. And immediate, and this is one time I felt the Lord's presence in that moment. I can, I, as I was praying that and crying out to Him in, in in desperation, I began to feel Logan's body cool down. Parents, have you ever been there? That's what this father is doing here. He's desperate. He's unable. He's helpless. And then in verse seventeen, let's look at Jesus' response. And Jesus answered. All right, so he's, he's, he's talking to the man. He's talking to his disciples. He's looking at the crowd around him in frustration. And Jesus answered, "Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Bring me the boy." You hear in Jesus's frustration in those words. I mean. Our Lord's response is somehow uncharacteristic of His kindness and His mercy, but very common throughout the Gospels. I mean, at the top of the mountain, remember in the earlier part of chapter 17, at the top of the mountain, Jesus, He shined bright and He glowed. And now here at the foot of the mountain, He groans and moans about who He has to deal with. At the top of the mountain, we see Jesus's deity. But here at the bottom of the mountain, we see his humanity. I mean, just as Jesus and Moses related at the top of the mountain here at the bottom of the mountain, Jesus echoes the same frustration with those he leads. His words, faithless and twisted generation are the same words that Moses spoke. Moses laments over in Exodus chapter 32. If you're taking notes or if you want to turn over there, Exodus 32 verses 4 through 5. Moses in this passage laments the weakness of faith that the children of Israel had. And here is his song, his prayer of lament concerning the children of Israel that God called Moses to lead. Exodus 32 verses 4 and 5, the words of Moses, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Same words that Jesus uses here, calling them a crooked and twisted generation, just like the children of Israel who failed in their trust of the Lord who had just brought them through miraculous events of exodus from Egypt. Jesus is expressing the same frustration that Moses did. I mean, Moses' context, again, was a great song, a great speech, lamenting over the failures of the people of Israel to trust in their Lord. It was one of Moses' final teachings to the people before Moses dies. He teaches them this song so that they will remember their failure, their inability to have faith and trust in their Lord. They, they failed to enter the promised land. Remember, the generation of Moses failed to enter the promised land. And the song of Moses in Exodus 32 calling them a crooked and twisted generation for failing to trust was their final lesson for Moses. I mean, Moses writes this song to teach the people. It's his final word to them. He was dying. His ministry was over. He too, remember Moses himself, he too failed to enter the promised land. So the song of Moses is also his words to his father in heaven and he laments. And Moses includes himself in this faithless and twisted generation. I mean, Jesus here will suffer at the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes not long after this event. And so he's looking at the human condition around him. And this human condition continually suffers at the hand of their sin. And Jesus physically connects with this father and his son in this boy's suffering his demon possession, his epileptic fits. Let's look here at verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. After Jesus expresses his frustration, not just with his disciples, but anyone who was within earshot, you twisted and failed generation, you crooked and twisted generation. <sighs> Let me heal this boy. So again, even Jesus is expressing the truth that his disciples, his followers, could not do this. I mean, the true nature of this illness in verse 18 is seen in how Jesus takes over. Jesus does not passively speak here. He speaks with authority. He rebukes the demon. You see that in verse 18? I wonder if church folks today would be angry with Jesus if he found it necessary to rebuke them. we will let that sink in for a minute. How many of us, if Jesus rebuked us, would be angry with him? Or would we be humble before him? I don't know, why, I don't know about you. I mean, rebuke comes, doesn't it? We all we are rebuked, but how how many of us would respond to Jesus with anger if he found it necessary to rebuke us as he rebukes this demon? I mean, the, the theme of rebuke carries from verse 17 to verse 18. And Now, Mark's account helps us give, give more detail. This is a good example of, of how Scripture can help us understand Scripture. So if you look at Mark chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, in comparison to what we see here in Matthew 17, verse 18, Mark's account gives us more dramatic detail of how Jesus casts out the demon. See, in Mark's account, he just speaks to him directly, and he just says, he rebukes the demon And they came out of him. Very, very brief. No, no details really from Matthew. But Mark's detail is much different. Mark chapter nine, verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead, verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. So even as Jesus rebukes the demon, Mark's account gives us a little more detail. There was more struggle there. Matthew's account is very direct and simple. I mean, in Matthew's account, Jesus speaks and it's done. Matthew shows us, I think, with simple direction that Jesus does indeed have the authority to speak, especially over the demons. And there's no last spasm of demonic power in Matthew's account. The demon came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. But, but I think despite Mark's detail of how much of a struggle there was, Jesus' authority is still clear. He speaks. Demons listen. It's interesting that evil is oddly subservient to real divine authority, isn't it? Now let's drop down to verses 19 through 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. So now we're, now this scene splits into a second sub scene. The disciples come to Jesus privately. This is probably after the event, probably later in the evening when they're all in a house together somewhere and said, why could we not cast it out? The crux of this story in verse 19 describes the lesson of this text. Weakness and faith, inability. The lesson here of why could we not cast it out? I mean, the question of ability will, will carry throughout the rest of chapter 17, just like authority dominated the first half of the chapter. But look here in verse 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. This is Matthew's account. He said to them, why could you not cast it out? Because of your little faith. I've got that underlined in my Bible, little faith. I mean, Jesus answered to his disciples' doubt. I mean, could be must understood as a ridicule. Maybe he was a little bit, maybe he was ridiculing them a little bit, possibly. But I think his words are more accurately understood as Jesus was stating the obvious. The reason that you could not do this is because of your little faith. I mean, the root of the problem is that we know deep down inside in our true self that none of us really believe as strongly as God demands. Can we get an amen? None of us who are born again, forgiven, redeemed, baptized believers in Jesus Christ, members of his church, part of his kingdom. If we're honest with ourselves, the root of the problem is that we all know deep down inside that none of us really believe, none of us have faith as strongly as God demands. I mean, we're almost as much unbelievers as the world of unbelievers are. There's a fine line there, isn't there? doesn't take much for us to fall back into the worldly ways of thinking because our faith is so weak. Little faith. Those of us who do believe in Christ, we tend to shift our focus, our lack of service to the kingdom, away from the deep root of unbelief. Whenever we fail to serve, whenever we fail to help others, How many of us fall into shallow excuses? Well, I just have a temper. I'm just weak. You know, I have bad habits. That's just who I am. You know, I have an addiction. You know, I, you know, I'm just a moody personality. You know how vain I am. You know, I lack ambition. Well, that's just me. You have to get over it. How many of us fall back into that kind of an excuse? But but, but the root of our little faith, the root of the disciples' little faith here is, is the hindrance to believe. I mean, our failure as good followers, good disciples, is the failure to believe. Jesus diagnoses the lack of power to care for the demon possessed boy here in order to teach his disciples. And I think he's teaching us the church to follow, to pray for faith for as for the one thing always needed. Now, Genesis chapter three helps us see the beginning of where little faith begins Genesis chapter 3, when we look at the fall of Adam and Eve, this also teaches us that little faith is the root out of which all other sins grow. When we look at verses 8 through 10 of Genesis chapter 3, Adam, the first man's shame, is evident, his little faith. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's little faith. Lack of faith. Adam, in the very beginning, in his shame, hid from his Lord. So what is the solution here then to this little faith problem? I mean, Jesus, his answer seems to magnify the original problem here of little faith. I mean, who can truly move a mountain? Who can truly do that? I mean, no matter how much faith, no matter how much dynamite and equipment, no individual can literally move a mountain. Now, a a great coal company can do that. Have you ever seen coal companies go into the mountains of Appalachia and strip a mountain down to nothing? We do have the power now to do that. But an individual, does an individual have the literal power to move a mountain? I mean, Jesus' charge here about the mountain, I mean, I don't think it should be taken literally. But some do take this literally, and, and therefore, I think they sink deeper into the original problem of little faith. Their, their, their little faith now becomes smaller in relation to the mountain. So what is Jesus encouraging here? I mean, Jesus, I think he's proposing a larger paradox in verse 20. Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I mean, Mark's account of this event gives us a detail that Matthew's account does not. I mean, here's a prime example of how, again, Scripture helps interpret Scripture. How then does Jesus encourage the faith of his disciples? How then could these unable disciples ever hope to serve those who suffer as this father and his son suffered? Look at Mark chapter 9, verses 28 through 29. A little more detail here. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Verse 29, And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what is the little faith problem? Prayer is faith in action. Prayer has been described as faith that breathes. Faith that breathes. Mark's account shows us a detail here that Matthew's account does not. Now, now before we go, I want to stay in Mark chapter 9, but if you go back here to Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, how many people in this room in their Bibles have a verse 21? Do you? Okay. What translation do you have? New New King James. Okay. Anybody else have a Bible that is missing a verse 21? Yours is missing 21. Yours has it, but others have missing 21. Okay. Here's a little side note, but it's a good biblical information for you here. Uh, many manuscripts of Matthew's gospel omit verse 21 because many of the original manuscripts do not have a verse 21. So perhaps verse 21 was added later at some point. Uh, but verse the missing verse 21 of Matthew 17 would actually read very much like Mark chapter 9, verse 29. It would read, but this kind of demon never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So this is where sometimes we have to be... Now, it's not that the scholars are incorrect by not putting in verse 21. It's because of biblical scholarship and archaeological uh, information uh, that the, the, the editors of the ESV and other more modern translations have agreed that perhaps verse 21 was added later at some point in history. That's all. Just a good thing to have. This is why this extra detail is important here. Why do these disciples not have faith? Why is their faith described as little faith? It's because they lack lack prayer. They did not. When this father brings his son to the disciples for healing, apparently the disciples failed to pray. That's what I'm getting from it. Perhaps they only, they said, "Oh, well, I am a disciple of Jesus and I cast you out. And clearly the demon laughed at them. And what is, because Jesus' response here is the reason you could not cast it out is because this kind of demon never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Prayer and Fasting. Mark's account shows us a detail of the father's faithful prayer. What's happening here? Verse, if you stay in Mark chapter nine, verses 22 and 24, let's look at that. The, the, the father, when he comes to Jesus, he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24 of Mark nine, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe help. My unbelief. That's the cry of all of us, isn't it? I believe. Help my unbelief. That's part of the, the crying out to the Lord. Have mercy. Help my unbelief. I mean, the Gospels do share with us that the three disciples cried out for help in their unbelief. This father's cry does. The disciples failed to cry out. They fail to acknowledge their unbelief, but the Father does. This Father's cry for compassion, his cry for mercy from the Lord is a prayer of faith. Yet I firmly believe that eventually the disciples learn this lesson of faith that breathes in prayer. We see evidence of that later in 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 the book of Acts as they're performing many miracles in the name of Christ. They eventually get this. So, how do we apply the lesson found here in Matthew 17 about little faith and the power to help the suffering? How does the church find the ability to help the world who suffers and is in need? I think we it's by believing God enough to pray. Doesn't mean that's all we do. But whatever actions or whatever the Lord calls the church to do must begin with prayer and must continue in prayer by believing God enough to ask for the ability, his authority to ask our Lord to come alongside us in this fallen, suffering world and to strengthen us with not our power, but his power, the only power to allow us to submit to his divine power and his divine mercy as we model that mercy for others. I mean, what, what these disciples failed to do was to fully trust in Jesus, That the transfigured divine Jesus that they just witnessed on the mountain. Now in a moment of practical application of the ministry, they failed to pray. I mean, these disciples lacked what Jesus calls here little mustard seed faith. They lacked little mustard seed faith that m- would move them to prayer anyway. How do we move into prayer? It's through faith. I mean, they trusted what one theologian calls the quasi-magical power with which they thought themselves invested. You know, theologians like to wax eloquently that way. Their failure was that they were, I guess they had a pride that they had some quasi-magical, mystical power to cast out demons, and yet they didn't. Think about this. prayerlessness is powerlessness. Failing to pray really is powerless. I mean, remember that God's voice in the bright cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration, it manifested on the mountain and said, listen to Him. These disciples failed. I mean, the source for authoritative power in the church is to listen to him. Jesus, our Lord, is the authoritative power and the source for helping those in the world, those this fallen suffering world, the source for helping is to talk to him in prayer, petition him, supplicate him, listen to him. Notice the relational rhythm of listening and talking that is found in prayer. I mean, this divine human conversation of listening and then talking takes place as we, the church, as the disciples of Christ, we breathe in, we breathe out, we inhale, we exhale. Christ's voice, as we listen to him, we then speak it and live it in faith. We can only believe, we can only have any amount of faith as we listen. How many have heard this passage of Matthew 17, taken in the context that we have, that we have to have more faith, or that we must have much more faith if we ever hope to have power to do anything in the world. You ever heard that taught from this text? Legalists, fundamentalists, even charismatics, I mean, they mislead by saying, if you believe much, God will do much. The reason God is doing little in your life is that your faith is little. Grow your faith to be as big as that mountain and God will move that mountain. That's really the summary of the teaching from this text that many have said, correct? The problem with this is that Jesus does not ever in the Gospels ever teach, you got to have big faith. Never. He teaches us to have mustard seed size faith. I mean, a little faith results in even a little prayer, and the results can be amazing as not we move, but God moves. I mean, His grace and His mercy are immeasurable. His grace and His mercy supersede the size of any mountain. Now, Luke chapter 17, will close with this. If you want to flip over, this is going to give us another, a prime example of how Jesus deals with the request for faith. Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 6. It actually shows us that Jesus does not give any of His disciples more faith, ever. Instead, He guides them to realize how little one's faith really is and how little faith is as it should be in relation to the authoritative power of God the Father. Read Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 6 with me. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And look at Jesus' response. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. See, Jesus responds to the request, give us more faith. With the answer, all you need is mustard-sized seed faith. That's it which possibly implies that they didn't have much faith to begin with anyway. (laughs) And you're not going to get a whole lot more. (laughs) So why are you asking for more faith? It's not about your faith. It's about faith in me, is what Jesus is saying. It's not about faith in yourself. This is not a self-help book. (laughs) Can we get an amen, folks? This is a turn to the source of power and authority, Jesus Christ himself book. Faith, not in our own power to do anything, but faith in our Lord who has all power and authority because he is who he is. I mean, we'll find nowhere in scripture where Jesus actually honors the request, give me more faith. Ain't gonna find it. Jesus... Never increases anyone's faith. Instead, Jesus points out how little our faith is. That's what he does. Or how non-existent one's faith is. Because the only quantity of faith that Jesus calls us to ever have is mustard seed size faith. That's it. Now that'll blow your mind if you come from the attitude or the teaching that uh, I can do all things in my name if Jesus is just giving me permission. See the problem here? I mean, instead, Jesus points out how little our faith is, how non-existent our faith really is, how our faith at the best, at the strongest it could ever be, is the size of a mustard seed. The trap of the human mind is to somehow increase our contribution to this Jesus-human relationship. Instead, the relationship between Jesus and us His followers is as minimal as mustard seed-sized faith because we fail. It is impossible for us in our human sinful condition to ever have faith big enough to equal Christ. I mean, whenever disciples and apostles try to do anything on their own in the Gospels, they fail miserably. And this applies too to any time they try to increase their faith or to heal the sick on their own. Only when they depend upon the authority of Christ following the resurrection, do we see that Peter and John or any of the other disciples or apostles heal or exercise anyone, any demons. Acts chapter three, verse 36. Notice, Here's where Peter and John apparently have learned the lesson. Acts chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, as they're coming into uh, the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, being a crippled person, asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Maybe that's where... Things failed, too, back in Matthew 17. The father of this boy goes to the disciples expecting something from the disciples. Let's continue in Acts 3, verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. No grand hocus-pocus, no grand quasi-mystical power, just speaking the name of Jesus in faith, praying as he does, rise up and walk. I mean, notice in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, Peter does not gloat about what he has to offer this beggar. I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. What the disciples learned in Matthew 17 in their encounter with this desperate father of a suffering boy is that they have nothing to offer anyone. Only through humble faith, very little faith, can we turn to Christ Jesus and pray for help, uh, helping authority to care for the needs of our suffering world. I mean, this is the call of the church to always seek in prayer out of mustard seed-sized faith, little faith. I mean, this is the call of the church to trust in Christ Jesus to do what should be done, to grant His compassion, to give His mercy upon the needs of sinful men. Do we have any faith, folks, any? I mean, do we have only mustard seed sized faith? That's enough. Do we believe that Christ Jesus is the authority to restore sinful men through his grace? Do we truly have faith in that? Or are we constantly trying to add to God's grace? Oh, I'll help you out, Lord. I'll read my Bible more, so I'll be more holy. I'll attend church more, so I'll be more faithful. We're trying to add to God's grace. I mean, we're always hindered by this low level of our faith, but is this not the nature of faith that God wants us to have, to be hindered by the low level of our faith, so we're constantly turning to Him over and over again, it, to always be lacking, to always be turning to Christ? That's why Jesus says, mustard said, size faith is all you need, because with that, you'll constantly be coming back to me over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, in, in this lack, Jesus encourages disciples that even the little faith can become enthusiastic faith about the authoritative power of God, not faith in ourselves, but faith in Christ himself. Jesus' story of a mustard seed-sized faith, I think, implants this Itty-bitty little minuscule faith within us. I mean, it gives us that little bit of faith that does so much because it's constantly pushing us to Him. I mean, when does this little faith come? And we're going to close with this thought. When does this little faith come? It can come by a word in a sermon. It can come by the impact of the Lord's Supper, which we will practice next Sunday. It can come by the inspiring encounter with Christ in his church. It can come by some overwhelming moment of prayer. That's when the little faith comes. I mean, Jesus' whole ministry was to place even a little faith within His people so that when they would pray, He would hear, so that they will be of help to the fallen world as they pray. Jesus was preparing His disciples for ministry after His resurrection and ascension, and they needed faith to help a fallen world after His departure. But even this little faith was more than enough to accomplish mighty things in the name of Christ, Jesus Himself. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for... We thank you for hearing our cries of mercy. Lord, have mercy upon our souls. Lord, have mercy upon our sickness and our financial disasters. Lord, have mercy upon our families. Lord, have mercy upon our church. Lord, have mercy upon me. God, I pray that from your word this morning, you would speak to us boldly about the little faith that you all, that you require. You only require a little faith of your, of your church. You only require a little faith of your disciples. Yet, Lord, we struggle even in that itty bitty little amount of trust. And so, God, we come to you even in this failure, this inability that we possess. And we come to you because you are able. And we trust you. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us here and all who are listening to these words, that you would impart in each and every ear, each and every soul, the desire for just a little bit of faith and continue to bring them and draw them to you constantly, to trust you and to point others to you. Lord, that is what we need. And we'll see mighty things occur as you do them. Lord, I pray for your love and your grace here. As we close in doxology, that you would be pleased with our song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.